0: Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you probably recognize some of the verses we just read, um, as it is one of the more popular passages in the Bible. And as we are going through the letter to the Philippians to kick off the new year, I want to contend to you this morning that the passage that we read today is also um, at the very heart of the letter to the church in Philippi. You know, Many agree uh, that the verses that we read today was probably an, an early hymn, Uh, sung by the early church. Now, whether it was uh, composed by Paul or just adapted by him uh, to read in the church, we're not quite sure. Um, But the reason why we are so familiar with these verses is because these verses, really, I, I couldn't think of another word besides beautiful. These verses are so beautiful. But maybe you miss that as we read these verses because you're so familiar with it. And in your familiarity with these verses, you and I are prone to just glossing over these verses, but let me share a quote with you before I start this morning, a quote that helped me to really reframe and re-see the beauty that we have uh, in the verses that we read today. The quote reads like this, consider that the story of the cross is told in each of the four Gospels, and that the theme of the cross is stitched across the pages of the New Testament, But only here in today's passage, only here in the entire Bible, are we given a glimpse of what the cross meant for the one who was crucified upon it. What was Jesus thinking as he moves toward the cross? On what basis were his life choices made? And if you love Jesus, you're here and you're saying, I love Jesus. I want to be conformed into his image, then this is a passage that we ought to hold on to tightly. But maybe you're not sure yet of who Jesus is, and you're not sure, you're just kind of checking it out. Well, this is a great place for us to start, for you to start, for you to get a glimpse of Jesus's mind and his heart, for you to get a glimpse of what compelled him and moved him to the cross. You know, historically, there's so many different interpretations on this passage. You look it up, You look for sermons on this passage, you look for commentaries on this passage. There's so many that there's no person, I think, that could have really read it all or have listened to it all. And the reason why there are so many different interpretations on this passage is because A, it's a beautiful passage, but also because it's it's a passage that is often ripped out of its context in the letter to the Philippians. It's ripped out of the context in the framework of the entire letter so we ask ourselves, what is the context that Paul is writing this passage in? Paul, as he's sitting in his jail cell, writing to the letter to the church in Philippi, what does he have in mind? What's going on in the church in Philippi? You know, Paul is writing to this church to encourage them. He's encouraging them because they're going through great difficulty. They're both going, they're going through a lot of pressure, both external and internal, Externally, they're, they're receiving political pressure from the Roman government. And internally, within themselves, they're facing difficulty because there is factions, there is rivalries, there is discord, there is division. And so Paul writes to this church, and he gives them this counsel. He tells them, stand firm in one mind. Stand firm with one spirit. Paul says this Often. We saw it last week in last week's passage in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. And here we have the language again, in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. What Paul is insinuating here is that the Christian life is not a solitary life. You can't be a Christian by yourself. It doesn't work like that. What he is saying here is that the christian life requires christians to stand firm together in community with one another and so we ask ourselves why does he give this encouragement in the first place why is this exhortation here in the first place the implication is naturally the philippian church was not united they were not of one mind the implication for us naturally is that it is the disposition of the human heart to not stand in one mind. It is our inclination to not stand firm, united, in the face of discord, division, turmoil, and opposition. It's our temptation to drift apart. It's our temptation to create rivalries and groups even amongst ourselves, especially when things get hard. It's our temptation to break apart, to splinter, But Paul says it again here in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full court and of one mind. He says it very clearly. And Paul is not naive. He's not just being repetitive because he thinks the church in Philippi just doesn't get it. He's being repetitive. He asks them continuously because he knows it's difficult for the human heart to do this. It's difficult for the human heart in the face of divided interests, in the face of opposition and divided perspective. It's impossible almost to stand together in one mind. Take one look outside in our culture today, and you'll see just how insanely divided everything is. These past two years, if it has showed us anything, it has revealed to us just how many different groups there are. And how these different groups, they just all hate each other. Blue versus red, rich versus poor, fake news, vaccines, anti-vax people. Just everyone hates each other. Everyone is at each other's throats. There's so many divisions, so many opinions at war with each other, and the Philippian church was no exception. And sadly for us, or more aptly for us, I guess, our church also today, is no exception to division, to strife, and discord. And yet, in the face of all that, it's not like Paul, what he is saying is useless for us. It's especially important for us. He says, for us to move forward, to represent Christ well, we need to stand firm. But to stand firm, we need to be of one mind. He says, be united. It's very easy for Paul to lose us here. Because, yeah, well, duh, John, unity, being together, having the same mind, that sounds pretty nice, but that's not reality. You're, you're speaking like a dreamer. You're speaking like someone who's just wrapped up in idealism and just, you think the, wor- the world is so rosy that this isn't even possible. It's impossible to unite such different minds and on such important topics, right? Right? That's the reason why division is so sharp in the first place. Division is sharpest where people care the most. People don't divide themselves among issues that it's easy to yield upon, right? They don't divide themselves on things that are not important. It's when things are most important. And they say, this matters. And maybe even more important than that, that this matters and I'm right. And you're not. And yet in the face of that, Paul says, be of one mind. Have the same mind. So the question for us is, what is the mind that you and I ought to have? What is the mind that Paul is encouraging us to strive after? And he answers it for us in these verses today. But he starts off by explaining to us what it does not look like. He says, have one mind, be of one mind, be of the same spirit, have the same love. And before he goes on to tell us what it is, he says, this is what it does not look like. Take a look at the first half of verse three with me. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You know, the phrase selfish ambition, it's it's pretty straightforward, right? You and I, When we hear those words, when we hear that phrase, selfish ambitions, it's not hard for us to imagine what Paul is talking about. And the literal translation here is is this, is do nothing from a spirit of rivalry. What Paul is referring to here is a characteristic of a spirit that lives to fight. A spirit that lives to fight. A spirit that is not governed by truth or reason but by personal preference, by personal ambition, by personal prejudice. It is the type of that takes everything personally and seriously because it's not about truth. There's no reason in the picture anymore. It's all about me and what I feel is right. It's no longer about the issue at hand, but it's more about the reputation. They're making me look bad. They're stepping on my toes. Every situation, every scenario has to do with me because everything is personal, and I am motivated by proof to prove that person wrong. Now, maybe as I say this, you you're, you're thinking, "Oh, I know someone like that," where everything is personal. They can't help but to take everything personal. And as I was preparing for this message, I thought that too. To be honest. I'm preparing and I'm thinking in my mind, oh, I know someone like that. I wish they were here to hear that. But you know, throughout this week, you know, I I really felt God speaking to me and him saying, You do know someone like that because you're like that. And if you're sitting here and you're hearing these words and you're thinking, oh, I know someone like that, well, let me encourage you, you do know someone like that, because chances are you probably are like that. then there's what is translated as conceit. Other translations have it translated as vain conceit. I love the King James version, the OG version, it has it translated as this, do nothing out of vain glory. The word, the Greek word that Paul uses here, if I can get a little bit technical, it's this, and it works. The Greek word that Paul uses here for glory, for vain glory is kinodoxion. Kino doxion. I'm going to use that word a lot, so just bear with me. The word is kino doxion. The word doxa in the, in the Greek, it, it stands for glory. The word kino is an emptying of, a disappearance of, and together that phrase kino doxion is referring to a spirit or to a person who is emptied of, who has no glory, and so is starving for glory. So if I can translate it literally this way, Paul says, do nothing out of a hunger for glory. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and do nothing out of a hunger for glory. What is Paul highlighting here? He's highlighting here something that characterizes all humans. If you and I can be humble enough to admit it, we are all starving for glory. We all want it so, so bad. You know the word glory in the Bible, do you know what the word holds and means? The word glory is translated to, it means to matter. It means to have importance, to have weight, to have eyes on me. And when Paul uses this phrase, kinodoxion, what he is pointing out is that fundamentally, the deepest fear of all human hearts, your heart and my heart included, The deepest fear of our soul is that we think we do not matter. Our deepest fear is that we are not seen, that we are not validated, that we are not considered important. We see that everywhere in our lives. And currently in my family, my daughter, Maya, she's four years old. And she's in this stage right now where everything is not fair. I say something to her, and she says, well, that's not fair, Daddy, which essentially means I'm upset because you're not letting me have what I want. And so she'll say, well, Daddy, that's not fair. And she'll cross her arms and run into her room. And she'll stay in there until I go in and try to coax her out. And you know, initially, I fell for it. She'll be like, that's not fair. And she'll walk into her room, and she'll sit down in her little chair. And I'll go in and I'll try to explain to her, you know, you know what fairness really means, Maya? I'm a pastor, so that's what I do. I talk. And I would talk to her and talk to her and talk to her. I would try to explain what fair really means, but of course she has no idea. She's just happy I came in. And so what I notice is the tantrums get crazier and crazier and crazier until one day, Tina is just sitting on the couch just watching. She thinks it's funny, I'm sure. And she points out, John, You know that's what she wants, right? She wants you to go in. Just leave her alone. Just ignore her. Pretend that you don't see what she's doing. And I tried it. And you know what happened? That's not fair, daddy. She'll walk into a room and I just sat down and I'll continue to play with my other daughter. And Maya will wonder why no one is coming. It's funny, it's hilarious. She started sighing out loud. (sighs) <sighs> what's going on in there and she just keeps sighing by i just ignore her and then she comes out a little closer to the chair that is right next to the door where i can't really fully see her but i can kind of see her and she can kind of see me and i see her head peeking out trying to see if i'm coming in but i ignore her until eventually guess what she comes out and she asks daddy why aren't you coming in Why are you ignoring me? Silly example, but we all know the feeling. Our greatest fear, the biggest insecurity is that we believe that we have no weight. We believe we have no importance. We want so desperately to be seen. If you guys ever been in an argument with someone that you love, you know this to be true. You know what I'm about to say, that you rather have the person that you're in an argument with, the loved one, you rather have them scream at you, confront you, blow up at you, rather than give you the cold shoulder. Cold shoulder is the worst. They just walk around pretending that you're not even there. It's the worst. Please, just scream at me. Please, just cuss me out, I don't know, do anything. Acknowledge me. What the human heart fears the most is being ignored. And the Bible tells us this, that every human heart, every human soul, you and I are working hard, that our life, really, a lot of it is spent upon trying to manufacture our own glory. We work hard to be seen to be valued we want to hold weight we know that we are temporary so we hear of just like when we used to have retreats all these old pastors getting into a room we we feel temporary so we we talk about legacies we want to feel like we're leaving something behind that people will remember us by we feel invisible so we work hard to be at the center of it all We want everyone's eyes to be on us. We feel undervalued at work, in our relationships. So we work hard, we spend all our energy climbing up the ladder and when someone ignores us or when someone treats us as small, when someone treats us like we don't matter, we go ballistic. We retaliate by putting them in their place. We demean them, we work even harder to not only capture the glory that we feel like we deserve, but to diminish the other's glory. I'm not sure exactly how accurate of a portrayal this is. If you guys have seen the movie, uh, Social Network, right? I'm not sure exactly how good of a job it does of portraying the, the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, but the film captures this idea perfectly in the opening scenes, Zuckerberg is sitting in a bar on a date with a girl, and he treats her so poorly that at the end of the date, it ends prematurely, she says something to offend him, and he is driven by Kinodoxian. He's so offended by this girl. He goes into his dorm room, he writes in his blog about the physical attributes of the girl. He demeans her. He talks about how she's like this, how she doesn't compare uh, to this girl and how she is different from that other girl. And he's writing this blog, and that's where he, he gets this idea, hey, why don't I start a, a, a social media platform where we get to just have a profile, and maybe that profile we can, we can compare others. That's how Facebook starts, right? But along the way, throughout the movie, you see a pattern in Zuckerberg's life where he's so driven by Kino Doxion. A desire to be seen, validated, seen as important. And so when he's not invited to this fraternity, but his friend is. When he's not invited to this party, but this guy is. What does he do? He goes out of his way to make sure that his, even his own best friend gets cut out of the company. He demeans him. And there's the ending scene. It's such a heart-wrenching scene where Zuckerberg is being sued by everyone and he's working in a meeting room by himself. It's all alone. It's so sad. And you could feel the loneliness and the desperation to be seen in his voice. When he's working by himself, his lawyer comes into the the room and he makes a point about, I haven't seen you eat anything all day. Maybe you and I should go get a bite to eat. And the lawyer says, no. All alone. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of conceit. This is not the mind that Paul is talking about here. So then what is the mind that he is talking about? What then can bring us together? What is the one mind that you and I ought to strive after? If it's not hyper-fighting, if it's not kinodoxion, is the mind that Paul has? Take a look at the rest of verse 3 with me. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Of all your attitudes, of all your perspectives, of all your opinions, of all your different ways of thinking, have this one mind, have this one characteristic, have this one attitude, one virtue above all else. This ought to be the virtue that controls and overrules the rest. This virtue ought to be promoted, if you will, above all others, and it's the virtue of humility. It's more important than being right, more important than being seen or heard, more important than getting your way. Learn how to view the person in front of you more important than yourselves. Learn how to see that person as more significant than yourselves. Verse 4 reads this Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Can I ask you for just a second? I don't have that much time to go into this super thoroughly, but can you think about it just for one second what that would look like for you? If you ought, if you just worked hard to, but also to the interests of others, how contrary this is to our culture. And then there's verse five, the hinge verse, the verse that holds everything that comes before it and after it together. Take a look at the first half of verse five with me. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In all your relationships, have this mind, the mindset of humility, the mindset of Christ. And what does that look like in day-to-day living? How can we see that exemplified in Christ, the mindset of humility? How is it personified in Christ? And that's where Paul uses this hymn to break it down. And this hymn can be broken down into two sections, verses 6 through 8 and 9 to 11. And we're going to go through it together really briefly. Take a look at the first half of verse 6 with me. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, and the word form here, the word form here, there's pages and pages dedicated to explaining what that word means. But it definitely does not mean the way that we use it today, of appearing to be or seeming to be. That's today's definition. But here, what it means is to be really and truly God. To be by his own nature, God. And so what the hymn is saying here is Jesus is really and truly, in all of his nature, God. That Jesus was, as the Gospel of John put it, knew where he had come from, God, and knew where he was going, God. Let's keep reading the rest of verse 6. It says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The only place in the entire New Testament where this phrase shows up, and in this context, I think it's fair and accurate to translate it like this. Precisely because he was in the form of God, he did not regard his status as something to be used for his own advantage. He was in the status of God, but he didn't use that status to his own advantage. He set aside his privilege that belonged to him. It was his privilege, he could. He set aside his position, the position that was all due to him. He set it aside for the sake of what? For the sake of serving others above himself. You know what the beautiful thing about this statement is? That it's not only about Jesus, but it gives us an insight into the very nature of God. The scholar N.T. Wright writes it like this. He says, this statement is about who God is. Because the hymn tells us that God's heart and mind is essentially self-giving, sacrificial, and loving. That's why I love some translations that translate it like this. Who, because he was in his very nature God, he did not count equality with God, something be used for his own advantage. Not although he was in the same form. It's exactly because he was God, he was sacrificial. Because he was loving. Because he was God, he gave of himself. It is at the very heart of God to lower himself. And if you and I proclaim to be sons and daughters of God, then we must look like this. We are to conform ourselves to his image. The humble, self-serving, sacrificial God. Let's keep reading verse seven, but emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? What does that mean again here's what it does not mean it does not mean that jesus gave away his divinity it doesn't mean that jesus stopped being god no because in the text itself it says that he was in his very form god so verse seven can be read almost like an idiom it's a way of saying that he gave up his rights he gave up his privilege he chose to do this He actively chooses to give it all away. Again, the King James Version translated like this, he made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. Now can anything be further from the truth or from the spirit of this age than he gave himself up and made himself of no reputation? We look at our lives, we look at our culture, we look at our friends, our neighbors, the people that we're stuck in this rat race together with. We are so concerned, above all else, our reputation, that our name matters, how others see us, how others talk about us. But notice that the mind of Christ that we are to put on is one where we are no longer concerned about our reputation. This passage goes even further. It's not just passive, it's it's active. It's not just when someone talks about us, we just say, okay, you know what, forget about it, it's all right. What he thinks about me is no business of mine. It's not just that. It's active. God chose to become a man. He chose to become someone of no reputation. Look at verse 7 again. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Literally, the word for servant is slave. And as you know, in the ancient world, a slave was someone who had no rights. And Jesus, who is in the form of God, actively chooses to come down the ladder, actively chooses to empty himself of his position, privilege, and rights. He gives it all aside and becomes a servant. Have this one mind among yourselves, Paul says. One mind. Which mind? This mind. The mind of Christ, who did not see his own, but rather rather chose to make himself of no reputation. Could I ask you to consider and ask this question for yourselves? What would it look like for you to become someone of no reputation? What would it look like for you to release care of your reputation? For you to release the care of advancement in your life? What would it look like for you as a leader to be a leader, to be a worker of no reputation at your work. What would it look like for you to take full responsibility? Not over the good things that happen, but the failures that happen. When something goes wrong, you're not immediately trying to protect yourself. Well, if this guy did this on time, or if she did this on time, then, then I wouldn't be in this position. What would it look like for you to just take full responsibility, to take the blame? Or what if something does go right and praise does come your way? What would it look like for you to be of someone of no reputation where you deflect and defer, where you say something along the lines of, yeah, yeah, but have you seen, this was a team thing. I couldn't have done it without this person or that person, all the credit goes to them. Or maybe even harder, Where something went right because of something that you did, but you don't get recognized for it? Are you able to swallow that pill? For you to just say, okay, I did that, but it's okay. I don't need recognition for this. What would it look like for you to be a parent for the parents in this room? To parent your children as someone of no reputation? I think I thought about it a lot this week. Like, I care so much about Maya. I want her to be a good girl. I want her to be kind and sweet and compassionate. But sometimes I wonder, do I want those things for her because it reflects good on me? Because when she is a good girl, then people will naturally assume that I taught her to be that way. Or do I want her to be that way just for her own sake so that she too can look like Christ? What would it look like for us to be parents of no reputation or even a spouse of no reputation? For you to love your spouse and not be recognized for it. How different would our lives look when in humility we consider the others more important than ourselves? Where instead of defending ourselves, we choose to yield, especially when we know that we are right, that we deserve it. It's so contrary to our way of thinking, because you and I are conditioned to kinodoxion. We believe that the way to a full, meaningful, important, seen life is to climb up to grab our rights, to establish, to assert ourselves, to promote ourselves, to look out for our own well-being, to look out for our comfort, and yet Paul says here, nope, that's not it. Have the mind of Christ, who by his very nature, God humbled himself, becoming completely obedient, completely surrendered to his Father's will, to even to the point of death, even death on a cross, and there's no word or example that I can fully give to describe the horror and shame that the cross evoked in the ancient world. All right, let's be honest here. You hear all this, and I was like that too. It's like, Why would anyone ever choose to do this? If you want me to be a Christian, maybe you should make it a little more easy. Why would anyone ever choose this path? You guys ever read the Bible and you think, okay, then I guess I'm not a Christian, I'm out. If this is what it takes, if this is what characterizes the mindset of those who belong to Christ, like actually belong to Christ, I mean, these verses are beautiful. They're so rosy, though. It's too dreamy. How can someone even attempt to practice something like that? It's too hard. I don't know. Well, let me end with this thought here and encourage us in this way. Let me direct us back to verse five. It reads like this, have this mind among yourselves. And this is the phrase here that I want, us to encur- I want to encourage us in. It's this, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the promise that Paul gives us here. He gives us all these things that seems almost impossible to achieve. The mind that we ought to have where we prioritize others, where we lay aside our self-interest, our own dreams, our own glory, this mind of Christ. This is the mind that we ought to have, the humility-driven mind that drove Christ to death on the cross. And Paul's promise here is this, that it's already yours. You have it already. How? It is ours because of Jesus Christ, because of what he did, everything different from us. You and I are Kino starving after glory. Christ emptied himself out of his glory to become human. You and I just work everything. We put all our energy into trying not to be forgotten, trying not to be trampled over, trying not to be stepped upon. And Christ, he embraces our worst nightmare. He was forgotten. He was trampled over. He was stepped upon. He was sneered at. He was forsaken. You know, there's this musical movie now. I couldn't get this line out of my head. Jesus Christ Superstar. And in the musical and in the movie, there's this little bit of dialogue where Pilate is looking for Christ. Can't see him. Finally sees him. He looks at Christ and he says this, So this is Jesus Christ. I am really quite surprised. You look so small. Not a king at all. Christ became small. Not a king at all. Isaiah 53, 53 verse 3 tells us this. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was despised and we esteemed him not we counted him as nothing we rejected him and not just by man but on the cross as well the only words that christ screams out my god my god why have you forsaken me why am i invisible to you why have you turned your face away from me jesus christ took what you and i are most afraid of emptied himself of his glory, despised, rejected, made small for you. Why? John 17, 24 tells us this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. Philippians 9 through 11 tells us, that because Christ chose this way, he is exalted above every other name. Why does Christ become small? So that you and I can be brought in. So that you and I can be brought into the glory that you and I were created for. The glory that you and I worked so hard to catch the glory that you and I will only find in our position as sons and daughters of Christ, standing in front of him as the one person who can give us something that we truly care about and cannot be taken away from us. Have this mind in you, the mind that is yours already in Christ Jesus. Hear it as it whispers to you when you are made small, the voice that whispers, who cares about what they think? When I love you, Who cares about what they say? Stop working so hard, climbing up. Don't you see the value that I have for you? Don't you see that there is nothing I will let come between you and I? The mind of Christ, the mind of sacrifice, the heart that gives, the heart that counts others greater than ourselves have this mind as conformers of his image paul reminds us this is the mind that you and i ought to have this is the mind that we stand firm in that we tie our roots to and side by side not just as individuals but as church family we strive toward let me pray and close our time together god we thank you for this time we thank you for your word we thank you that you, were, that you chose to be brought down, that you chose to empty yourself, that you chose to give of all that you are so that I, so that we can be brought in, so that we can have the glory that we're so desperately trying to catch here, that you have given it to us, The same glory that belongs to your son, we have because of the work of your son. And God, we pray, Lord, that we will be committed to that, that that would be something that we will not forget, that we would root our lives upon. God, please be merciful to us. Remind us this week, just of the value of the glory that we have, not in anything that we do here, but because of what your son has done for us on the cross. We love you so much. Help us love you more. We pray all of this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.